Hello folks, welcome back to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. We're diving right in this week's episode featuring Whoop VP of Performance Science, Kristen Holmes, and SVP of Data Science and Research, Emily Capralubo, and they are talking all things heart rate variability, that is HRV. HRV is one of the key signs of fitness and how well your body is ready to perform on any given day. Kristen and Emily discuss what HRV is and how we measure it, the link between HRV and the autonomic nervous system, how HRV is a highly personalized piece of data. They talk about how a good HRV is relative to the person, how HRV is impacted by menstruation and pregnancy, ways to boost your HRV, WHOOP member data from the Core 4 Challenge, which just concluded, and some listener questions around HRV. This is a great all things HRV podcast. Reminder, if you're thinking about joining WHOOP, you can visit our website and sign up for free. That's right, free 30 days on WHOOP. It's the full WHOOP experience. That is at WHOOP.com. New members can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, get a $60 credit on WHOOP accessories. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast.whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. Here are Kristen Holmes and Emily Capitolupo. So Hari Variability is one of the most asked about metrics that we have in the platform. And today, Emily and I are going to just go as deep as humanly possible on all things Hari Variability. Excited to dive into this with you, Kristen. I know, same. This is going to be fun. Okay, so we're definitely getting into kind of the tactical side in terms of, okay, what can we actually do to improve heart rate variability? But before we dig into that, let's just set the stage very simply. What is heart rate variability? High level, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's how variable your heart rate is. Not everybody realizes this, but when we talk a lot about, you know, oh, your heart rate's 60 or your heart rate's 120, it's actually not beating perfectly evenly like a metronome. It's beating, you know, a little bit faster, a little bit slower each beat. And the variability or the amount that that timing changes from one beat to the next can be quantified. uh, And we call that heart rate variability. The reason why heart rate variability is important is not because it's sort of good or bad for your heart rate itself to move, but that the cause of that movement is the movement of your autonomic nervous system. Your autonomic nervous system sends signals to increase your heart rate, and it sends signals to decrease your heart rate. And the increased signals come from your sympathetic or your fight and flight side, and the uh, decreased signals come from the parasympathetic, that's the rest and digest side. And so when both of those sides are getting their voice heard, so to speak, we see that dynamic play out in your heart getting go up, go down, go up, go down type signals from the two branches of the autonomic nervous system. And that nice balance of 
both sides being heard, manifests in a nice jumpy little heart rate and high heart rate variability, and that's what we like to see. When we see low heart rate variability, it means one side is dominating the other and we're not getting both of those voices heard. And so maybe, almost always, it's the sympathetic side dominating. It's that fight or flight, go up side that's winning. Uh, and the parasympathetic rest digest side is being silenced as a result of that. And so our body is becoming only sensitive to half of our autonomic nervous system's inputs. And so we ignore uh, those inputs. And so we don't meet some of those needs. And so we get out of balance as a result. And so you can think of heart rate variability. It's just one place where this plays out. It also plays out in like your eyes, uh, you know, dilating, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, constricting and, you know, kidney function, all these other places. Heart rate variability is just one place where that uh, sympathetic, parasympathetic activity it's just really really simple and straightforward and non-invasive to measure so it's the one we choose to measure but we care about it because of what it tells us about the nervous system perfect so it's a function of the heart mm -hmm. but it originates not on nervous system totally okay and you know i think what you said is is really important that it, it's a it's a metric that gives us a nice overall picture of how your health is trending so talk a little bit more about you know, how do we use this marker on the WHOOP platform to give you a sense of how you're adapting? And what are some of the things that can impact how, whether we're adapting in a functional way or a maladaptive way? Yeah, a lot to unpack yeah, there. Yeah, two big questions. <laughs> Great big questions though, let's do it. So WHOOP measures your heart rate variability continuously, but the heart rate variability that we report to you as part of the recovery score is an aggregate from the period in which you were sleeping. And so every morning you wake up and we show you as part of the recovery breakdown, here is your heart rate variability. What you wanna see is that when you're at rest, so in this case sleeping, your body can get into a state in which it's responding to both sides of that autonomic nervous system. That sympathetic and the parasympathetic. If you can't get into that balance, it's often because there's some demand on your body that is causing you to become sympathetic dominant. And a great example of this is like if you're sick, mm -hmm. um, our sympathetic nervous system goes into overdrive to rev up our immune system and fight that off. And that's important. We want it to do that. That's the desired response to fight the infection. But as a result, we're not, like I said, listening to the parasympathetic side. And in not listening to the parasympathetic side, all of its agenda is being ignored. And so if you stay in that state for too long, there tend to be like different health consequences. You're not going to feel good. It also means that if you are sympathetic dominant, your body is actively engaged in something. In, in the case that we just mentioned, fighting an infection, revving up your immune system. And so therefore those resources are not available to go to other activities. And so if you want to think about this from like a performance angle, right? Like I need to put a bunch of resources into my legs to run quickly. Um, if I'm putting those resources into revving up my immune system, they are not available to my legs. And so I can only run so fast, which is why if you're fighting a cold or something or you know, you've been sick, you go work out and just you feel heavy and draggy and like not good. And it's because you literally cannot like put that oomph behind it. So that's, that's why like 
you will feel less good on days when your HRV is low because that is a sign that your body is doing something else. To back up a little bit to the other part of your question, you know, how do we think about HRV as showing us if things are adaptive or not? If I have a great workout, the goal of my great workout is to create a signal for my body that says, uh, you know, I am not fit enough for the demands of my life. And our bodies respond to that by building muscle or expanding lung capacity, all kinds of different adaptive changes. Uh, and so acutely, like right after that workout, I actually might see my HRV go down because I'm responding to the exercise stimulus by building my muscles. And, you and your know. body heard you, which yeah. is a real positive thing. Yeah, no, it's a really yeah. positive thing. And, and I think like, you know, if I wake up, I have a great HRV, I go do a great workout, I want to see that my HRV has gone down. And if it doesn't, that might be a sign that, um, you know, I didn't do something that like signals this need right. for an adaptive right. change. You didn't really overreach enough to, <laughs> to, to have your body say, oh, yeah, okay, that... I meant that meant something to my body. Totally. And yeah. that doesn't mean that it wasn't useless. There's right. other reasons to work out other than like, I'm not trying to build muscle necessarily right. every single day. Right. Um, different people have different goals. But if you do have this sort of adaptive response, you'll see your HRV come down as your body rushes in to build back stronger. But what you want to see then is that like then the next day after you've had your rest recovery day, your HRV comes back and there's this phenomenon called supercompensation, which is you know, your HRV will be at one level, it will go down in response to the training stimulus, mm -hmm. and then it bounces back to an even higher level because now I am more fit. Right. And you can look at the trends in your HRV of like, if I push, and I can push you know two, three days in a row, this isn't always like one day, one day, one day, but if I push, I will see my HRV go down. If I back off, my HRV needs to come back up. And if I'm getting the balance of overreaching to rest correct, when I back off properly, I will not only bounce back, but I will bounce back to a higher baseline. Right. And so you can see if you track your HRV day after day after day, or in Whoop's case, night after night yeah. after night, and you follow these trends in a way that Whoop makes it so easy to do, mm -hmm. you can see that are the different things that I'm doing in my life laddering up to like getting this benefit of super compensation where uh, I'm, you know, yes, I'm having this adaptive challenge, but I bounce back higher. Um, am I trending in that right direction or is it stagnating or decreasing over time? If you do nothing uh, as you age, we see that HRV declines over time. So it will naturally decline and you have to be actively engaged in adaptive behaviors in order right. to get it to stay constant or go up. Let's talk a little bit about some of those adaptive behaviors. Cause I think, you know, so many folks on our platform are interested in improving their heart rate variability because they know <laughs> a heart rate, you know, an autonomic nervous system that's more responsive to, to the demands of the heart is healthier, mm -hmm. right? And is gonna allow us to be more functional and uh, in, in our own environments. So when we think about some of the behaviors, so you talked about, you gave a beautiful example of this kind of super compensation period of time. And then there's, you know, and that might be for some people, it's going to be three or four days of kind of a, a, a workout where they're functionally overreaching. And then there's this back off period, right? So as, as your heart rate variability starts to decline and you maybe kind of get into that lower range of yellow, that might be a time to kind of back off a little bit and try to rebound. Mm -hmm. Now, what behaviors are going to help 
promote that rebound mm-hmm. versus behaviors that actually might kill that rebound. Because mm-hmm. I think that's where people go wrong when they're trying to get fitter, right? Is they, they do all the hard work in the gym yeah. and then they, they, they ruin it by like kind of doing behaviors that are going to counteract all of that hard work that, that just, that they just did. Yeah. I think that was one of the things that I learned first when I came to <laughs> Whoop was just how much an athlete is made outside of the gym yeah. and how much, like, I think even people who have the best coaches money can buy are just botching it in the other 20 hours. Yeah. And it's when and I think about it, it's not from, crazy, yeah. right? That like the 20, 22 hours outside of the gym matter, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's not, it's such a small fraction of your day that you're right. actually training. Even for professionals, it's yeah. not the majority of their time. So it makes sense that the rest of it matters. And I think it gets a, such a tiny fraction of the attention. So I'm yeah. glad we're going to bring some attention to this. Yeah. We opened by talking about the example of being sick, right? That's an example where your body's doing something. Mm-hmm. Your HRV is low because you're diverting all these resources to your immune system. Well, it's very real. It will resolve itself because as soon as you stop needing to fight an infection, all those resources become available and we see HRV balance out again and increase. There are all kinds of different things that sort of gobble up these resources some of which are reversible on very quick timescales. So when you think about something like hydration, right, we know that HRV is going to be depressed if you're dehydrated mm-hmm. um, in a pretty dose-dependent way. Mm-hmm. The more dehydrated, the more yeah. depressed. Drink a glass of water or two or three if you're dehydrated, and that's going to bounce immediately up. So right. you can go from having a low HRV to a high one in you know minutes. Yeah. Um, and... So there's a lot of behaviors that you have a lot of pretty granular acute control over that can impact your HRV and therefore, you know, these adaptive responses. So eating well, staying yeah. hydrated, right. managing stress. Mm-hmm. Um, the timing of eating is, I think we're seeing really <laughs> important. Yeah. Time, you know? The timing of eating, that's more on the like um, day-to-day scale. Right, For sure, right. we see that time-restricted mm-hmm. eating has a huge impact on mm-hmm. HRV. But even just like... If I eat a nourishing meal that mm-hmm. makes me feel good yeah. um, and meets my nutritional needs, right. I'm going to see like later in the day mm-hmm. an HRV benefit versus if I eat a whole bunch of heavy junk that doesn't really satisfy me. Right. The flip side is a lot of the obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, and we see this all the time, like athletes will um, work out and then go get beers. And yeah. like, you know, if you drink, not only does that put your body in a state where you're severely stressing it mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. but you're also putting it in a state where it cannot respond to the exercise stimulus right. and get fitter. So you almost like waste that input. Yeah. So you you're... do all the work <laughs> to yeah. work out and then you see like less of a fitness gain because there's this acute period in which that stimulus to build muscle and all of that is present and it'll just dissipate without being met if you don't put your body in a state where it can engage in those building behaviors. Yeah, like restorative behaviors. So principally, I think it's safe to say that, you know, as you're considering a behavior, you can kind of think about, all right, is this behavior, whatever it is I'm going to do, is this going to deplete resources mm-hmm. or divert or, or d- divert resources yeah. or, or add to resources. Yeah. And I think that you can kind of think your body, think about your body in that context. It, I think kind of helps you frame your choices a little bit more proactively. If your goal is to in fact get fitter and, and make gains and, mm-hmm. and improve your HRV. Yeah. Right? 
And I think that that point is really important because I think sometimes people can think of Whoop as being like really intense all the time. Right. Right. And I don't think that there is no room for making decisions that deplete resources. Mm -hmm. I think a balanced life is a beautiful thing. But we want people to understand like if you just had a really tough workout, don't ruin that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Or at least yeah. don't ruin it without realizing that that's what you're doing. Because right. if it was just for the fun of like playing a game with your friends of pick up basketball and you don't care, like that's a decision you can make. But right. I think most people don't realize that they're making that decision. And it's just you should realize that if you follow that up with all these quote unquote like bad behaviors or yeah. things that deplete resources, right. you will get a smaller fitness gain from that. And over time, will have a longer path to reaching whatever fitness goals you might have right. versus if you follow that up in a way that you know, nourishes your body mm-hmm. in, in every sense of nourishing mm-hmm. your body. So getting enough sleep, yeah. uh, keeping stress low, you yeah. know, putting your body in a place where it can take on those anabolic tasks and it put those resources behind gaining your fitness. And so, yeah, it's, it's just important to realize that the fitness gain that you get is not solely determined by the exercise that you do. Mm-hmm. The exercise sets a maximum, but what you do over the next couple hours determines if you get none of that or right. all of that. Right. So that, yeah, it's just, it puts you on a, a potential scale, but you still have to do a whole bunch to go realize that potential. Perfect. Folks on our platform love to compare each other, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, let's just discuss why heart rate variability is a very personalized metric. Mm-hmm. And then I think I, I'd love to, this is a question that I get a lot, you know, when they first come onto the platform, they've got mm-hmm. this, you know, and after the WOOF has calibrated, they have, arrive at a baseline. Mm-hmm. You know, why is that baseline different than a friend who came on at the same time? Um, so we can talk a little bit about just prior behaviors mm-hmm. potentially that influence it, but there is obviously this kind of genetic component to it that I'd love for you to speak to? Yeah, (laughs) it's a complicated question. We know in general that people who are more fit, people who have lower resting heart rates tend to have higher heart rate variability and the opposite is true. We know that in general, people who are younger tend to have higher heart rate variability and people who are older tend to have slightly lower heart rate variability. That said, this is like one of the stats that has the most exceptions, right? Like <laughs> wide, wide variability. I've seen people who are professional athletes that do not have particularly impressive looking HRV, even if they're young, even mm-hmm. if objectively what they are achieving in the fitness world is incredible. So the correlation to fitness, while the trend absolutely mm-hmm. exists, is very, very noisy. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know why. Presumably there's genetic mm-hmm. components Heart like there is anything else. You know, how this happens to be manifesting in your heart rate, heart size. We do know that all kinds of things like there are medication mm-hmm. and environmental interactions with HRV mm-hmm. that could be interfering with our mm-hmm. signal. There's a lot of things that can create artifacts in mm-hmm. HRV. So change your heart rate variability without changing your autonomic nervous system mm-hmm. underneath that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain extreme examples, like if you have a cardiac arrhythmia, that makes the reading of HRV mm-hmm. somewhat invalidated. So that gets a little bit complicated, but that's a relatively rare state. But for the most part, it's like, you know, it's like why do two siblings that have the exact same mm-hmm. parents and genetic potential end up six inches 
you know, in height different from right. each other. Right. It, it's not that one had a less healthy anything or a better anything. It's just there's randomness. Yeah. We've seen with resting heart rate, there tends to be a much tighter correlation to performance. Like the better runners really do have lower resting heart rates. Right. HRV is just a lot noisier than that. Mm -hmm. And the best we can really do is say, we don't super know why, yeah. <laughs> but we also know that it doesn't matter. And that's why we talk about baseline a lot right. because within an individual, um, you know, whether you tend to be higher or lower for whatever reason, it means a lot when your HRV goes up or your HRV goes down. And so even though the absolute number doesn't mean a ton, uh, it, it's still extremely useful as an individual training tool. And so once you've established your baseline, something that WHOOP makes very easy by doing it automatically every single night and having a clean apples to apples comparison by doing it under those clean recording conditions mm -hmm. every night, you can trust that if my HRV is trending higher, you know, this week's average is higher than last week's, this month's is higher than last mm -hmm. month's, whatever it is, I must have done something or something has happened such that, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this adaptive benefit. And so without caring what your baseline is, it's very, very meaningful is that baseline shifting up or down. Mm -hmm. And so it's still an incredibly useful metric. Let's talk about uh, sex differences uh, mm -hmm. just very briefly. Um, women who are um, who have a natural cycle are going mm -hmm. to experience, uh, you know, cardiac, their, their mm -hmm. cardiac profile is going to change across mm -hmm. the menstrual cycle um, with kind of in concert with the rise and fall of, of hormones. So maybe just talk a little bit about women, what women can expect on the platform in terms of heart rate variability. I'm so glad that you're asking this question because during the follicular phase, which is the first half of your menstrual cycle, so from menstruation to ovulation, roughly the first 14 days, although that does vary from person to person, you are going to have higher heart rate variability. You will respond better to training, recover more easily. Generally. Generally. Certainly lots of exceptions mm -hmm. as there are with everything. And uh, an important caveat is this is for individuals who are naturally cycling, so not using hormonal birth control, which because the hormones changes this pattern quite a lot. But if you are not on a hormonal form of birth control, what you see in the follicular phase, those first 14-ish days, uh, is higher heart rate variability and all of the, the benefits that come with that. And then declines around ovulation, roughly the midpoint of your cycle. Um, and then the luteal phase, which is from ovulation to menstruation, again, roughly 14 days, sometimes a little longer, um, you, you will see lower heart rate variability. And it's such an important thing for those who are naturally cycling to be aware of because you might accidentally read into it that like, oh, what's going on? Like, did I do something, something that's wrong. better? Or am I doing something yeah. wrong? And so it's really helpful to know that this is a very common and very natural response to the fluctuations in your hormones. So A, don't read into it. Mm -hmm. You didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> necessarily wrong or, or right, right? Yeah. When it goes up all of a sudden mm -hmm. in your follicular phase. And it's also really helpful because you can program around this. Mm -hmm. Many people find that if they plan their tougher workouts during the follicular phase mm -hmm. and the kind of back off recovery stuff, endurance workout, lots of zone two training, yeah, more technical work, technical work, yeah, in the luteal phase, that they will make gains faster because mm -hmm. they're working with their hormones and with mm -hmm. their body versus if you tried to do the opposite so you're out of phase with what your body wants to do. Right. And so by 
And what's, what's nice about it is for many people, that cycle is super predictable, mm -hmm. at least like, you know, within a, a few days. And so you can plan, like, yeah. I'm going to go on this trip and, and do, you know, hike this tall mountain, right. or, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do it here instead of two yeah. weeks later because yeah. I'll, it'll be easier for me. Or, yeah. you know, when you're picking which marathon you want to mm -hmm. run, like, you know, this one versus that one, if they're two weeks off, you might have very different performance. Uh, and if it's not always possible to, you know, schedule your vacations around your menstrual cycle phase, at least you can plan around it, right? right. So this might take me a little bit longer. I might need more water. Mm -hmm. um, we sweat more, mm -hmm. uh, more easily mm -hmm. during different phases. And so we yep. tend to get dehydrated mm -hmm. more easily during our luteal phase. Mm -hmm. um, so we need more water. So that's like a really simple example of yeah. something where it's like, okay, I know not only is exercise going to be harder, but like I might want to be fueling for that exercise or supporting my body for that exercise a little bit differently. So I'm going to pack extra water from right. doing electrolytes. Can be a, electrolytes are, are super helpful one too. during luteal yeah. phase. Yeah, totally. I'm glad we talked about the menstrual cycle because it's so important to so many people, but there are a lot of things that are like this, right? Yeah. There, in pregnancy, you yeah. also see different changes in HRV. Mm -hmm. and, and pregnancy, you know, you just had a baby. <laughs> um, it was a while ago now, but um, Aria was born in January. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about um, just the fluctuations in your you know, cardiac measures, you know, kind of <laughs> over the course of pregnancy, you know, just what we've seen in the research and, you know, just spend a minute on this. I think it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. We've written two papers on this now, but it's almost scary if, if I hadn't done the research to know what to expect, but pretty much from the jump, your resting heart rate's going up, your HRV's going down and it, it happens pretty quickly. Yeah. It's like pretty dramatic <laughs> and it doesn't stop. Like my HRV I think went from average like in the 80s to averaging in like the 30s over the course of my pregnancy. It was a lot and my heart mm. rate went up like 15 beats yeah. per minute. <laughs> the crazy thing though is that literally like the first reading after you deliver, it just, it super compensation, yeah. right? It bounced back so far the other way and you know, Whoop was saying like, oh, you have like a 400% increase. In <laughs> it was like, I've never had such good values. Yeah. And, and it's exactly what we've been talking about, right? Mm. I can't imagine anything diverting resources more Making than a full-term baby, baby yeah. right? <laughs> like, and all of a sudden you take that challenge or, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to say burden. Yeah. I love my baby, but that, you know, physiological burden off yeah. of your plate and your body's like, woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's actually like when you think about it, it's like such a beautiful physiological system because you feel like so light and like yeah. there's this nice rebound moment and you're about to do the hardest thing you've ever done. Take care of a um, Which is like not sleep and take care of a brand new human. Yeah. Um, so you need it. But it's it's pretty incredible. So you will see like this steady decline in HRV, steady increase in resting heart rate. Mm -hmm. um, but we do see that once the baby is delivered, that those metrics not only bounce back, but uh, you have this super compensation effect that lasts for, for months. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you resume training once you're cleared to do so, you yeah. can maintain that, yeah. um, which is pretty incredible too. Yeah, the body is just unbelievable yeah. <laughs> in how it works and how it functions. Okay, I think people expect there to be a very linear relationship between heart rate variability and sleep performance. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about what 
is HRV actually correlated with? So if we're kind of to look at the literature and kind of look at our data, where do we see the strongest relationships in terms of heart rate variability and sleep? Oh yeah, that's a fun question. I think one thing people don't always appreciate is that our sleep performance score is really focused on did you get enough sleep? Right, sufficiency. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're talking and that's about. a very different question from is your body restored? Mm. And that's why we have a recovery score and a sleep score. You need both, they're telling you different totally. things. Did you get enough sleep is really a commentary mostly on your behavior. Mm-hmm. Sort of, did you do the thing that we told you right. to do? Did you spend that enough you time need? in bed? Yeah, to, and it's like, like optimally. Yeah, and then like have your environment enough yeah. in the right place that like the time in bed actually was like sleep. Right. Um, I think the like extreme example that I like to give that helps people understand this is like think back to the last time you were really sick. Mm. Like you can sleep for 16 hours and still be exhausted and still feel like crap. Yeah. Right. So just because you got enough sleep and in that case where you're sick and you sleep for 16 hours, you very much could have gotten plenty of sleep, right? right? 100% sleep performance. Your HRV is still going to be terrible. You're not going to have bounce back. We almost always see like the opposite case, right? Like where if you don't get any sleep, your HRV is going to be bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But just because you did get a lot of sleep in no way means that your HRV is going to be good. And I think like anybody who's ever slept for a while and still woke up feeling crummy should understand that. Like sleep is the behavior that gives you a very good chance at having HRV, right? You're not going to have great HRV without doing pretty well, at least on sleep. So it's sort of necessary, but not sufficient. Um, And all these other things, like what was going on in your body, Mm -hmm. you know, are you properly hydrated? Are you super stressed? Are you fighting anything? Are you fueled properly? Mm -hmm. All of that is going to be captured in HRV. And that's why it's such a beautiful metric. You know, it's responsive to so many different Mm -hmm. things. So anything that's really going to drive sleep quality does tend to drive HRV. Mm -hmm. So when you have that really awesome night of sleep and you wake up just feeling incredible, you probably do have a good HRV. And so things like sleep consistency Mm -hmm. um, and healthy sleep behavior, sleep hygiene, all of those things are definitely correlated. But the correlation to sleep performance itself is weak because sleep performance is just one of so many dimensions that get into, am I restored and rested? Right, right. So so basically we think about, all right, if we really want to try to improve our capacity to adapt, improve Mm -hmm. our heart rate variability, um, it's going to start with, you mentioned it, sleep consistency, right? And we just completed some research around this, which is really exciting. We can kind of see an actual drop off in your heart rate variability for kind of every minute of variability after 45 minutes. Yeah. If you think about your, you know, when you go to bed and when you wake up, and if you're, if that variability is um, extended beyond 45 minutes, you'll start to see a deleterious effect or a, a negative effect on your heart rate variability, which mm-hmm. is really interesting. And we know that sleep consistency drives quality of sleep, and mm-hmm. quality of sleep is also associated with a higher heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. So. One of the behaviors people can engage in to kind of back into improving adaptive response would be stabilizing sleep-wake time. Mm-hmm. And that's probably like one of the bigger behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. Would you say in terms of if you can nail that, there's probably a lot of other behaviors that come along with that that are positive. Yeah. One of the big things 
that happens when you align your bedtime, wake time, and improve your sleep consistency is that you become predictable to mm -hmm. your body. And when you're predictable to your body, it can anticipate sleep is coming, wake is coming. Mm -hmm. And this actually doesn't just improve your sleep, it improves so many different aspects of your life. Like to get weird for a second, because people don't like talking about this, but like you will digest food better if yeah. your circadian rhythm is aligned. And so you're less likely to get constipated. And right. like, so you're gonna process food, get more nutrients out of mm -hmm. it, right? Like have it move through the way it's yeah. supposed to move through. <laughs> um, and you know, you will feel tired when you're supposed to feel tired. Mm -hmm. You will maintain energy when you know in the evening when mm -hmm. you're supposed to maintain energy. There mm -hmm. is this like wake maintenance effect yeah. that comes in, and so you'll feel energetic and present up until it's bedtime. At right. which point you will feel sleepy, and hormonally you will be ready to transition into sleep. Right. So you tend to see shorter sleep mm -hmm. latencies, mm -hmm. it's faster time to fall asleep. Right. You stay asleep because again, like hormonally, you are ready for sleep. Yeah. Your hormone levels are going to sustain that sleep, and then you wake up and you feel present and awake when you wake up not groggy and like you want to roll over and sleep for two more right. hours so you wake up and you feel ready to do mm -hmm. the day and everything is functioning better all right. day long and so it's this funny behavior that's like it feels like it's just about sleep and there are huge benefits to sleep for doing it but there's actually huge benefits to systemically like your circadian rhythm yeah. affects everything right. and you see them systemically yeah um all throughout the day yeah yeah when you think about circadian dysrhythmia and its impact on fertility, its impact on metabolic dysfunction, mm -hmm. its impact on your mood and alertness, like mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's crazy how powerful it is. And it, and I think when you're feeling alert during the day and feeling sleepy at night at a base level, like that's really what we're kind of striving for. Yeah, because then you feel right? good. Then Exactly. And you can, <laughs> you have the energy to do things that you need to do. And yeah. I, there's nothing more frustrating than like laying in bed and not being able to fall asleep. Right. And you then, know? then you start to stress that like you're right. going to be tired tomorrow and that stress makes it even harder to yeah. fall asleep when you spiral. Yeah. Um, totally. So yeah. throughout the month of August, um, our members got to take part in the core four challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was basically four simple activities that would help boost their heart rate variability, optimize their circadian rhythms and restore focus. We had a cool kind of happy aside is that people, this really did increase journal engagement, which was neat. Um, people were really logging these, um, these behaviors, which was, was, which was awesome. And it gave us the ability to then uh, kind of show on an individual level and a group level, you know, what were the changes in, um, in you know, heart rate and heart rate variability over the course of this challenge. And um, we identified breath work, morning satellite, and intermittent fasting, and zone two cardio as kind of the top four that we felt like could move the needle the most. Mm -hmm. um, and these are also kind of a lower barrier to entry, you know, they're because yeah. they're, they're democratically available to everyone. So mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure people had access. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about breath work and its connection to heart rate variability. Why is it such a powerful kind of heart rate, you know, variability boosting activity? Breath work is kind of this like manual override mm. for your autonomic nervous oh, system. I love that. When you breathe slowly mm. and in a controlled way, mm -hmm. your heart rate is going to change to match that breath work mm. because when we inhale, so we fill our lungs with oxygen, we will preferentially like increase our heart rate to get 
blood to rush past the oxygen-filled lungs so mm -hmm. that the blood is passing your lungs when they're full no. of the good stuff. Mm -hmm. um, then when you breathe out, our heart rate slows down because the blood that passes by the lungs while your lungs are empty, they never really get empty, so mm -hmm. empty is kind of a cheater word, um, but when they're less full, right, we'll get less oxygen. And so we want more blood going when they're full, mm -hmm. less blood when they're empty. And so this is actually called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, and it's the uh, phenomenon of your respiratory rate in a lot of ways contributing to your heart rate. Mm -hmm. So if you don't think about breathing, we will automatically adjust our respiratory rate up and down based on the oxygen demands of our body. Mm -hmm. So if you're more active, right. you'll more breathe oxygen. more yeah. in order to get more oxygen. Mm -hmm. But it's this funny behavior in that like most of the time it's fully automatic, but when we choose to, we can override that, right? And so if we take over and we slow it down, we slow down our heart rates quite a lot, and we start to create that heart rate variability through the respiratory rate variability, and it kind of, yeah, it's this like manual like power reset moment, and yeah. we see that when you come out of even just like a minute, two minutes, short periods of these intentional slow breathing, your heart rate variability is higher. Right. Um, and this is, and all of the you know, good things that come with that, right? You tend to feel less stressed, a little bit more focused. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, particularly great behavior to do at night because mm -hmm. it can help you fall asleep. Because what's cool. happening a lot, the way our autonomic nervous system works is when one side, you know, we were talking earlier about sympathetic and parasympathetic. When one side is having a strong input, it's not only having a strong input, but it's blocking the other one. And so... When I'm being loud, I'm like actively making you quiet. And when you do this manual override, it's just this one moment where you like let some of those parasympathetic signals get through. And that's why it's so powerful. It's like, stop blocking, you know, the little guy, yeah. <laughs> let him get his stuff in. And so we have this moment of um, rebalance mm -hmm. and in listening to all of these inputs that had been ignored. Mm -hmm. And when those get pent up, it's really powerful to like yeah. let that side of your autonomic nervous system get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I think when we consider, you know, one of the HRV kind of crushers, mm -hmm. it's definitely negative stress accumulation mm -hmm. and breathing breath work is a way to basically interrupt stress in a very mm -hmm. proactive way. So you don't get this accumulation because yeah. invariably when you allow that stress to accumulate, it can become chronic, right? And that's when we see burnout and low energy and it starts mm -hmm. to disrupt our sleep and our mood. And so just this like very simple, intentional kind of breathwork sessions throughout the day can have a huge impact. Totally. And we saw that in the data, which was neat. Yeah. Um, morning sunlight, you know, this is uh, tied to kind of the whole circadian rhythms thing. So we talked extensively yeah. about sleep-wake time. And in order for that melatonin to kind of be released, mm -hmm. we need darkness. But I think what people don't realize is that we also need a lot of sunlight early in the morning. You know, as soon as we wake up, essentially, we want to get as much light, natural light as possible. Maybe just talk about the relationship between this, you know, between cortisol and melatonin and kind of how they bookend the day. Yeah. So it's just the same way that we need darkness to produce melatonin. We need 
not darkness to not produce, <laughs> right? Like, so you can think about sunlight as shutting that off, which is why we don't want all the artificial light exposure at night because it shuts off melatonin production. Right. Well, now that I'm done sleeping and I want to be awake, I do want to shut that off and, mm -hmm. and cut off whatever's left. It also is a very powerful signal to your circadian rhythm, to your brain that like it is daytime, I want to be engaged in day, so it helps to center the circadian mm -hmm. rhythm, it tells your brain, yeah, it's go time. Mm -hmm. So it helps with alertness. And so it's a powerful signal to help yeah, center your circadian rhythm and keep yeah. it in line with your environment. Yeah. And you um, talked um, earlier about just the anticipation, like your body's anticipating and we want mm -hmm. to make sure that we're feeding our body the cues that they're, that they want to get at yeah. the right times. And right, and confirming what it thinks is going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Because I think when we talk about your your resources, right? Mm -hmm. Like you want to, you don't want to make your body work harder than it needs to, right? And these are the circadian behaviors. Why I love them is mm -hmm. that they are relatively simple to mm -hmm. kind of do for the most part for most people, but it kind of creates this baseline kind of homeostasis. Mm -hmm. You know that like. And, and your body's not having to like work hard to get to homeostasis. You're kind of yeah. helping it. <laughs> yeah, because one of two things happens if you don't set your body up to anticipate things correctly. Either it'll like over prepare, which is a waste of resources and kind of like be ready for everything, which is mm -hmm. like a high alert, wasteful state. Or it'll say, I don't know what's coming, so I'll wait to figure it out, in which case you don't prepare for anything. Right. And when we see that with sleep, where like you have no melatonin production going into like getting into bed because you're trying right. to sleep at a weird time when your body's not anticipating it. it's going to take like two hours for that to build up so when you anticipate it you actually you start producing melatonin two hours before your body thinks it's going to go to bed right. if you wait to say like okay i'm in bed like <laughs> i'd like some melatonin now please or it's going to take a while to build that up during which time you're going to roll around you're going to get frustrated that right. frustration is going to suppress it yeah. bad things happen right. and so you want to put your body in a position where it can guess and guess correctly and mm -hmm. then get a positive feedback loop on i just guessed correctly right. And you like super briefly mentioned this a couple minutes ago, but like this is why your circadian rhythm is like such a 24-7 thing because it's not just that I want to anticipate sleep, but I also want to anticipate mealtime, yeah. right? Because if a meal comes when I'm anticipating it, I'm ready with insulin. If it comes when I'm not anticipating it, I want to have a larger spike in my blood sugar mm -hmm. while I like wait for the insulin response to happen. Right. And then you get that sugar crash, right? And all these different things that's like not great for your metabolic health. Right. But if my body knows like I get food in this window uh, mm -hmm. to jump ahead yeah, to intermittent, intermittent fasting, fasting yep. or time-restricted eating mm -hmm. being, you know, the third of our, our four behaviors, right. if my body knows when something is going to happen and it can rely on that, it can be ready for it. Right. And so we see that it's not that eating at 10 o'clock is bad. It's that, like eating when your body was like thinking that I'm not getting any more food tonight. And so it was like, you know, doing other things, doing other <laughs> things or, you know, releasing sugar in anticipation of like being in on reserves right. mode instead of on new inputs coming in mode, right? Like then you have to adjust on the fly and mm -hmm. just think of, I mean, it's, it's no different than like at work, right? Like right. if you just get something random, like slapped on your desk in the morning, like it's a lot less like smooth, not anticipating right? it. yeah. <laughs> and if it's like, okay, I know what I'm doing today. I have my yeah. agenda. I'm doing mm -hmm. it. You know, our bodies are exactly the same way. Yeah. And so uh, anything you can do to be predictable mm -hmm. is going to make it easier. Right. And so it is much less work mm -hmm. to like do something that feels like it's the same thing. Right. 
Totally. And we definitely see in the data, you know, individuals who, you know, we talk about intermittent fasting obviously is, is you know, really mm-hmm. picking this consolidated window where you're eating all of your calories. And then you have a very, you know, kind of, uh, you have defined kind of fasting window. And there can be lots of different iterations on kind of when you're eating and when you're fasting. But I think long story short, as it relates to heart rate variability, we do see that when folks report eating meals within two to three hours of bedtime, we see an impact on heart rate variability mm-hmm. next day. So there is, I think, this competition that's happening when you're actively kind of trying to digest your mm-hmm. food whilst also trying to sleep. Yeah. So um, they do seem to compete with one another in some way that impacts heart rate variability. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the conversation we were having earlier around like understanding how what you're doing affects things. Like mm-hmm. if you're super hungry at 10 o'clock at night, you know, because for whatever reason you missed dinner, by all means, like, go eat. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, it's not necessarily the goal, and it's not possible for most people to do this perfectly day after day after day. It's probably worse for you to, like, go to bed starving than it is to go to bed having eaten yeah. a late meal, like, in terms of your HRV, but also just broadly. No question. But if you have the opportunity to control this and, like, can both stop eating you know, on a reasonable time and not therefore be starving at night, that is better than just like, it is worth understanding the consequence of having that exact same meal Mm. two or three hours later. It's metabolically different. The way that it interacts with sleep is different. So this isn't to say like this is bad and, you know, if your work schedule or whatever only gives you certain opportunities by all means, please don't yeah. starve. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you have control and, you know, are motivated mm-hmm. to get those benefits, this is something that oftentimes is an easy, relatively easy one mm-hmm. to manipulate and does have a, a meaningful benefit. Yeah. Um, so when you can do it, it makes sense to do it. Cool. Zone 2 cardio was the final behavior. Um, <laughs> and we see really nice relationships between getting in this zone, you know, uh, for 160 to 200 minutes per week seem to have a meaningful impact on, mm-hmm. on recovery. So what's kind of happening physiologically during zone two and um, why is this such an effective recovery modality that promotes heart rate variability? Zone two is this like beautiful level of exercise intensity where it doesn't super fatigue you it doesn't wear you out it doesn't put a tremendous amount of recovery burden on you mm-hmm. but it does you know flush the system out mm-hmm. you get all the fun endorphins of exercise mm-hmm. you get a good stretch mm-hmm. um, you get you know your heart rate up which is good for you because mm-hmm. then you get the benefit of it coming down and the relaxing effect after that and so what we see is that it's it almost like shouldn't count as exercise Um, I mean you're definitely being active and you might Mm -hmm. sweat and all those Mm -hmm. things and I give everybody credit for any exercise that they (laughs) credit for but its primary function is like it is such an incredible recovery tool because you just it's this like release things that need to be released yeah I mean its impact on mitochondria yeah on so the turnover, like it seems to have some real... Yeah, because of... it's enough to like wake the system up, right? right. So you get like the yeah. mitochondrial activation, mm-hmm. you get... It's good for your body to like use your full 
range of motion and range of function. So, yeah. you know, you breathe deeply, uh, you fill those lungs, right? right? You get your heart rate up a little bit, but not enough to create a recovery burden. So when right. you do, we were talking about like those higher zones, zone four and five, mm-hmm. and you create that training stimulus, that's great because it has this fitness adaptive effect. Yeah. Um, but you do have to have like the hit to then yeah. adapt to. This is nice because you get a lot of those benefits of like exercising your range mm-hmm. of function uh, without incurring a recovery burden. Yeah, and we definitely, we saw that people who track zone two showed a greater percentage increase in heart rate variability mm-hmm. compared to those who didn't. Um, right, because it's all the benefits of exercise without the recovery burden, so yep. you just get the boost yep. instead of the like dip then boost. For sure, and yeah. we absolutely acknowledge that there could be other health and lifestyle factors that went into that change, <laughs> totally. um, but it, it definitely shows that members who are more diligent about tracking and were conscious of their zone two um, efforts throughout August saw the benefit in their, in their heart rate variability. It's yeah. worth mentioning that this is the beauty of our journal feature, mm. that like, you, you know, you mentioned like, oh, there could have been other things going on. Right. That's what the journal will help you tease apart. So you can go in and try these things for yourself. I think that's even more important. Like we, we did this study to like have a fun challenge and yeah. to wa- raise awareness of four relatively simple free behaviors yeah. that you can engage in to boost your HRV. But in order to really understand what these things are going to do for you, uh, you need to go journal about them, yep. try them out, see what it does to your HRV because different people are going to respond in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the only way to know what's going to work best for you is to try it. Yeah. And just for people who want to know, the raw change at a group level was 0.3 milliseconds, which is, you know, which is the smallest, you know, kind of meets the threshold of smallest worthwhile change, which is cool. Yeah. And it's small, but there's a tremendous amount of variability, right? Exactly. And so knowing if you're going to be one of the people that this is game changing for, or one of the people yeah. that this is just kind of nice for, right. uh, you have to play with the journal to find out. Totally. Love that. This is kind of like an incredible story. And I, and I, you know, we talk about the, you know, the physiological implications, or we talk about how, you know, mm-hmm. taxing our physiology is going to have an impact on heart rate variability. We mentioned stress briefly and its impact on heart rate variability. But I, I think this question that Melissa has really does show that, you know, it's not just a physiological kind of monitoring device. You know, I mean, heart rate variability is such a great proxy for our emotional mm-hmm. and psychological state as well. Melissa says that she's had her whoop for almost four years and her heart rate variability has been very stable, usually in the mid to high 50s. For the last five months, my average heart rate variability is between 54 and 58. Prior to mid-August, my heart rate variability had never gone above 100. In mid-August, I did a four-day intensive therapy retreat to address some extreme anxiety as a result of the trauma she'd been experiencing. Within days of this, her heart rate variability began spiking above 100 and once it even got to 270. Over the last two weeks, my average heart rate variability has been 111. My question is, have you seen any research on the impact of HRV after intensive therapy experience or other emotional psychological changes? And <laughs> the answer is yes. yes. <laughs> there's, there's some really good literature um, showing changes in, in heart rate variability after um, therapeutic intervention. Yeah. So there's no question that um, heart rate variability is a wonderful indicator of you know how you're managing your psychological state, and there's of course this interplay between the psychology and the physiology mm-hmm. that's very very difficult to tease apart. Mm-hmm. But I think understanding that it's not just how you train, how you eat, how you sleep that impacts your heart rate variability. It's very much how you're managing your emotional and kind of psychological landscape 
Yeah. And I mean, it's so incredible to see that Melissa had this amazing yeah. response. I think one thing that's interesting that she calls out is that her HRV improved immediately, even though she says she did not feel better immediately. Yeah. And I think that that's, we've seen this over and over again, where, where HRV kind of responds in like before we realize we've yeah. responded, <laughs> totally. it's like this leading indicator. And you'd think that, you know, if the therapy worked and my HRV is responding, like, why don't I feel better? We see this a lot, even just with like talk therapy, right? Like people yeah. go to therapists and their, their recovery scores are terrible the next mm -hmm. day. And it's because they're like kind of mulling over and like processing, yeah. but then like, you know, over time of like adding therapy, right? Their HRV goes up, which is interesting yeah. too. So like there's, there's all these different patterns where it's like so cool that the HRV is mm -hmm. like, oh, I know you did something good and, and yeah. I'm, I'm releasing something, I'm processing it and you'll catch up to yeah. this being good in a yeah. moment. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I just wish her the best and hope that she continues to feel better and, yeah. and uh, you know, work through that. Yeah, I just really appreciate her sharing yeah. this, you know. Anar asked a question about the impact of pain medication, sleep medication, anxiety medication. And the answer is yes. <laughs> All of those things are going to probably artificially push around heart variability. Yeah. Um, so just to be aware of that. Yeah. And I think it's a great question because it's really complicated. Mm. Um, first of all, pain medication is so many different things, right? Yeah. There's opiates, there's NSAIDs, there's all kinds of natural right. stuff. There's so many different things. There's also just pain is going to decrease mm -hmm. your HRV because we will have a strong sympathetic activation to being uncomfortable. And so right. just the removal of pain, you know, even if you did it totally non-medically, like right. if you hypnotized me or I don't know what you right. do, right? Uh, what you would expect removing pain to, to increase change. your yeah. HRV. One thing to be aware of as we talk about medications and, you know, anything, pain, sleep, anxiety, totally falls into this is there are medications that can increase your HRV and increase it in a way that's an artifact. So right. it's a way of saying like it's, you, you didn't get fitter by taking right. this medication. It is impacting and creating noise, response. yeah, artificial response on your autonomic nervous system because it is interacting with your autonomic nervous system. Right. So any medication that's going to activate your parasympathetic mm -hmm. side, benzos, mm -hmm. um, which are used for mm -hmm. anxiety and sleep, right. um, might increase your HRV. It does not mean that it is better for you. Right. It, it might be appropriate for you to be taking it, but I wouldn't read into that like, oh, I got more fit by taking right. this med. It is an artifact of the medication. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, we've talked a lot about like monitoring your baseline mm -hmm. and all of that. It's mm -hmm. worth being aware how different medications can shift your baseline in a way that doesn't mean like I am fitter or less fit. Right. And you um, think about it from the perspective of autonomic health, mm -hmm. it might not necessarily be improving your mm -hmm. autonomic nervous system health. Yeah. yeah. All right. How do you obsess over HRV? <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, what's so beautiful about HRV is it's this all-cause indicator mm. of what's going on. And so it's this speedy, quick view of like, is the sum total of what's going on in my body moving things in the direction that I want or moving things in a direction that maybe I should do something about. Mm -hmm. And to have that like quick, again, relative to my baseline, mm -hmm. but quick view of things are going well, things aren't going well, is really helpful mm -hmm. and can let me know like, you know, keep doing what you're doing or take a moment, reflect, 
go look, dig into what's mm -hmm. changed and think about, you know, how you want to move forward. It was so fun chatting. It was so fun <laughs> chatting with you. It's one of my favorite topics. I so know, I'm glad I know. we could do and this. You have done such groundbreaking work, frankly, in this area. You too. Um, this was your I, challenge. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, just generally, I mean, gosh, over the course of the last 10 years, really. It's funny because I know when I joined Whoop seven years ago, you, I know, you had already been working on this for a few years and, you know, I was using HRV in my environment, you know, and just to see how it's become kind of part of people know what heart rate variability is now. Like I just think about, you know, seven to yeah. 10 years ago, like literally just a handful of humans even knew what heart rate variability is. And now it's like, it's kind of commonplace. Yeah, it's so interesting. In my WHOOP interview, which is 10 and a half years ago, uh, Will asked me if I knew what heart rate variability was. And he said that he thought it was going to be important. And well, first of all, he could not have been more right. Wow. Yeah. Um, but nobody had heard of it. And it was so interesting, like in you know, 2013, 2014, when we were talking to people about it, and it was like the core of our recovery score, we had to like really fight to get people to understand that this was worth yeah. tracking. And now everybody appreciates it, but there's still so much to learn about like how do you control it? Yeah. You know, all those things. And it's cool because you know, decades ago it was used in these like acute care settings. It's a great predictor of whether or not like a preemie is going mm -hmm. to survive for 30 days. It's a great indicator of survival after a heart attack. And it was mm -hmm. used in these sort of niche medical situations and not kind of in the, the daily the world. And I think yeah. that, you know, it's in a lot of ways, that's like the story of wearables, right? That you democratize this information, yeah. you make it available to everybody, you make it available continuously and things that, used to sort of only be used in these really specific settings right. can have like tons of impact on everyday situations yeah. you know, way more than people realize. Big thank you to Kristen and Emily for giving all the insights and tips to boost HRV. If you enjoyed this episode of the Whoop Podcast, please subscribe to the Whoop Podcast. Leave us a rating and a review. Check us out on social at whoop at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us podcast at whoop.com. Call us 508-443-4952. You can join Whoop for free. That's at whoop.com. New members use the code Will. Get a $60 credit on Whoop accessories. Okay, that's a wrap, folks. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the Whoop podcast. As always, stay healthy and stay in the green.